Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sorry to interrupt your content consumption, but can I quickly suggest a podcast you might like? It's called Grown Up Land. Every week, comedian Heidi Regan, podcaster Ned Cedric, if that is even a job, Syrian Dreamboat, Steve Alley, and me, comedian Sophie Duca, are joined by a brilliant guest to discuss the bewildering pursuit of adulthood. We talk sex, jobs, rejection, jealousy, sex, all with help from BBC Radio 4. That's the Grown Up Land podcast. Make sure you subscribe on BBC Sounds. I'm a feminist, but I assumed Captain Marvel was a man and was tweeting about Captain Marvel as part of a joke, like, oh, my film's got a premiere at the OD in Leicester Square Lux because it thinks it's Captain Marvel. Thinking Captain Marvel's a man until I saw, a, like, a little trailer, and I was like, is Captain Marvel a woman? Because normally women superheroes I called somebody woman. <laughs> How am I to know that a captain is a woman? I've been raised in a patriarchy where captains are men. It's not my fault. She should be called Captain Marvel Woman. <laughs> I'm very pleased she's a woman, though. She's just made a billion pounds or dollars as well. What, she made a bit over a billion dollars? She's cracked, she's cracked some kind of glass ceiling. And listen, hats off to her and her womanness. I am a feminist. But I prefer the Mr. Men to the Little Misses. Oh, I know. I'm with I you. I do. Because Why are they called Little Misses? I don't, well, here's the thing. They came out in 1981, I think. And the first one, I wish I were joking, Little Miss Bossy. Thanks, Roger Hargreaves, from Beyond the Grave. <laughs> Where 
Whereas Mr. Happy is beautiful and yellow and round and happy, and I know that's because he's reflecting a lifetime of male privilege, but... <laughs> I do... Oh, please, let's write Mr. Privilege. <laughs> and Little Miss fucked off with all this shit. Yeah. Little Miss, I have had this. <laughs> little Miss, call me Little Miss. And One you... more time. <laughs> She's just there with a the bazooka. <laughs> we should do that. They would sue us, they but would. we should. Be a good way to go, though, wouldn't We could it? do, like, a little parody for Twitter, and then if they try and sue us, they look like the assholes. Exactly. <laughs> I'm a feminist... But my kittens conform very strongly to gender binary norms. <laughs> so Seymour, people who follow regularly know I've got kittens. So we had Mimi and Toast. Sadly, Mimi died. Very young, five years old, kidney infection. We didn't want Toast to be alone, so we got her a pair of kittens because we thought she might ostracise one and then it would be sad. But if we got two, she could choose to play with them or not. We got Seymour and Audrey. Who's, who knows why they're called Seymour and Audrey? Yes, Little Shop of Horrors. That is correct. But I did hear it from the audience first, and I know that you did not cheat. Um, it just seemed rude to answer it when... The, yeah, yeah. no, didn't... no, no, no. Good, good work, everyone. Uh, characters <laughs> in Little Shop of Horrors, which we've just been to see. Now, they were just both little tiny teacup kittens. Seymour has just become this boy parody of like, oh, I'm rough and tumble. Oh, I get what I want. Oh, male privilege. And Audrey's like, struck me, I am adorable. But she is the best fucking jumper in the house. I don't mean I wear her when it's cold. I mean, she can, in a single bound like a superhero, she can get from the floor to the top of the curtain rail like Captain fucking Mewvel. Meowvel. Still works. Works, works. Um, I feel like I should do a film one since we're um, here, and therefore this is a genuinely terrible confession because I feel properly bad about it. I am a feminist, but I have still not got round to seeing the female remake of Ghostbusters. Oh. I know, because I, I was really busy when it came out. I was on tour, and I didn't get around to seeing it, and, I, and now I do book talks and things I have to gig during the day as well as in the evening so my life has just got worse than when I was a stand-up and so the bit where you used to go to the cinema when we were doing gigs yeah. at night it, it's just I've just lost it yeah. or I have to write a book during that time well someone's I've walked out someone's I, wa- people right are walking they're like <laughs> well, fuck this shit fuck yeah. that I know oh little miss I haven't right. seen Ghostbusters I know yeah. <laughs> he doesn't even know how many times I've seen Under Siege with Steven Seagal <laughs> I just can't it. He might just happened. be going to the loo. He might not be. He maybe he's in the wrong cinema and thought he was seeing Casablanca. It is. The, it is. It is the BFI. I'm a feminist, but I not all gay mend my personal trainer the other day when he told me that he advertises on Gumtree and he said, "Oh, I get lots of really lascivious messages from men saying, can I have your underwear and can I give you a massage?'" And I was like. We mustn't stereotype gay men, hashtag not all gay men. And then I went, oh my God, I am pushing back on his me too. And then I quickly reframed it. I saved it, gang. Don't worry, relax. (laughs) I said, women get this too. We get this all the time on the internet. This isn't about gay men. It's just about men. (laughs) Hashtag not all gay men. Hashtag yes all men. (laughs) (laughs) Saved it. Saved it. I am... a feminist, but I thought I would defend 
women's rights to wear whatever they want in any context and particularly in terms of what they choose to wear as a head covering. But I realise I don't think women should be allowed to wear fascinators. <laughs> I don't believe... It looks like you picked a fight with a pigeon and everyone lost. I don't... I don't understand why that is considered formal wear. OK. I don't understand. I'm going to ask you now, have you seen the cover of my book, The Guilty Feminist Sunday Times bestseller? It's adorable. It's a picture of me wearing a feminist fascinator. It's adorable. It's adorable. But I, I won't do... have them at weddings. No. I just won't have them. <laughs> it's like you've picked it and then it's right that like... Over... Why would you... What? I do see what you why? mean. They're useless hats. Yeah, miniature hats can also fuck off while I'm on it. <laughs> Live from the BFI in London, the Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Natalie Hayes, and very special guest Jessica Swale, talking about leading ladies. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White, with me is Natalie Haynes, and we're talking about leading ladies! <laughs> so, Natalie, tell us a little bit about you and what you do. I used to be a stand-up comedian. Um, I remember. Long ago, yeah, 150 years ago. And then, essentially, I ran away and joined the circus. And then I spent 10 years as a comedian, and I ran away and joined the library. Um, so now I write extremely serious, sometimes funny novels about women in ancient Greece, for the most part. Yes. Yes. And I have a radio series called Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics, in which I talk about people from the ancient world. It's brilliant. Does anyone know the show? It's fantastic. You've got to look it up. It's not my, can we, 1.6 can I, million listeners per episode. That's so let's all not, I'm saying. Let's, can, is it on the Audible. Again? You can buy it on Audible now. You can buy it on Audible. It's right up your guilty feminist street and down your alley. Certainly that's what we've aimed for. <laughs> it really is. It's truly remarkable work. Um, so we're excited uh, because you know about all of the stories that are the classical stories that a lot of our contemporary stories are based on or inspired by, the ones that are in the sort of consciousness of humanity, Absolutely. often they are told from a masculine perspective. Almost always. Almost exclusively. Yep. Women often come to a terrible end. I mean, you know, in the Trojan War, pretty much everyone comes to a terrible end. I'm to not going to lie to you. It is a war. T to be fair, yeah. to be fair. One of those huggy wars. No, it's not. No, no. no. <laughs> but you managed to retell these stories from women's points of view. Yes. And you did an incredible play uh, last year with other women. Yeah, I was one of, I think, six women, maybe we were seven, who translated a chunk of the Aristophanes play, the Ecclesia Zuzai, uh, which means the women of the assembly or women in power. Uh, which played in, I can't remember now, I should know this, Southampton and then Oxford, I think. And I think they hired me because I can reliably say the word Ecclesia Zuzai on the radio when there's an interview. Um, I can also do Thesmophoria Zuzai, even in the middle of the night, even when I'm drunk, I can still do it. Because the one thing I've got is fluency in ancient Greek. That's it's literally no help. Very much not the one thing you have. You've got many, many things. <laughs> the main one. But Jenny and Claire wrote for that as well. She did, and Wendy Cope, and Jess Phillips. So we had some amazing... Um, the idea is that women in ancient Athens, 5th century Athens, have no political power at all because only men turn up and vote it's a democracy but it's a very limited democracy insofar as women aren't invited and it's predicated on slavery so 
it's it's better than you know, but it, in lots of ways. Mm. Um, and <laughs> Aristophanes, like Brexit, better than, but mm, in lots of ways. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and Aristophanes, who is a fantastic comedian, genuinely brilliant, and completely invented many of the techniques you or I would still use on stage mm. now. He was kind of fixated on the idea of what would happen if women took control. And he wrote three plays where that happens. The Thesmophoriad Zuzai, the Ecclesiad Zuzai, and the Lysistrata, which is probably the most famous, when the women get so tired of men being at war that they go on a sex strike. And they refuse to have sex with their husbands or boyfriends until the men make peace. And the whole thing is hilarious. Obviously, the women are desperate for sex, the men are desperate for sex. Everybody in a Greek comedy has a massive stick on phallus. They're all played by men. All the men have stick on phalluses. The women have smaller stick on phalluses. Excellent. It's an odd time, 5th century Athens. I'm not going to lie to you. Is it possible that Aristophanes was, in fact, a woman? No, it isn't. I like this thought, but no, he was a he. Um, and, but and but we wonder, there, no, how many pictures are there of him? Like, there are zero of, pictures. I'm, I'm going yeah. to need pictures or it didn't happen. How do we know? that? Because in history, there's lots of women that lived as men. Yes. To, in order to get away with this shit. Yes. There we aren't def- loads who fathered children, though. Fair enough. I mean, okay. there's like four or five. Sperm, I'm just going to go with this. There were sperm... There were always ways. He had a... She had a okay. double act. So she yeah. was behind the scenes and she'd say, Aristophanes, I've got another one for you. Yes. She'd give him the play. He'd be like, oh, I'm too busy fathering a child right now. And she'd be like, yeah, but when you're done with that particular orgasm, could you take it out into the street and say, oh, I've come up with another play? I what have to that? tell you that it is... There is at least a suggestion in the ancient world that the speeches of the great Athenian orator and friend of Aristophanes, or at least overlapper with Aristophanes, Pericles, there is a suggestion multiple times that his speeches are written by a woman, by his common-law wife, a woman named Aspasia. I knew it! I knew it! You're welcome. Has everyone seen Amelia? Okay, if you haven't seen it, go now. It's not going to be on for much longer. It's in the West End, and it's about the first published female poet in England. She's thought to be the dark lady of Shakespeare and of North African origin. She's played by three amazing black women at different times in her life, but they're all on stage throughout. But similarly in that, there's a sort of hypothesizing that some of Shakespeare's best speeches for women were ones that he nicked from conversations with her because a lot of his characters are called Amelia. And she was around at the same time. And he's always writing about Italy and her family were Italian. She wrote an incredible poem basically saying that it wasn't Eve's fault that we got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And anyway, even if it was, you men killed Jesus. <laughs> there you go. I mean, it's hard to see how it is Eve's fault. This always really bothers me that you're like, there's, you can have any of the fruit from any of the trees except this tree. Mm. And then I'm also going to create, in addition to you and him and this tree, this extremely persuasive snake. Yeah. But it's like, I, at some point, yeah. I think you have to take the he's responsibility. He, he, he is, is gaslighting. He's ga- you're gaslighting by someone by going, I'm yeah. going to leave you alone with this tree. I invented it just so you couldn't eat. And lies have yeah. already been told. And yes, yeah. I have misremembered Genesis, and I don't think in this instance that I have. Yeah, I don't. You have. Somebody has already said, oh, you can't eat of the tree of knowledge because you'll die. Somebody here must know Genesis better than I do. You'll die. And that is a lie. So, no, because you know they what? know they were immortal until they ate, and then they did die, but in a limited lifespan. The so snake went... tells them more truth than Adam tells her. That's all I'm we're saying. We're going to be struck down, I'm telling you. I can live with that. <laughs> the beer fires are going to be blown up. Um... <laughs> Please welcome to the stage the incredible Natalie Hayes! <laughs> 
So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the Trojan War. Is that fine with you? Excellent. <laughs> and we're going to talk about the women of the Trojan War because that's the book I've just written. I've just written a book called A Thousand Ships, which is the Trojan War, but only told from the perspectives of women, but loads of them. Goddesses and mortal women and women who uh, suffer the consequences of the war, women who start the war, the full whack. And it bothers me a lot, you see, that classics, which is my passion, my speciality, if you like, has been turned into a kind of enclave of places where men get to have adventures and women don't really do anything. Because it's not true. It's not how it was in the ancient world and it's not how it has to be now. And if we don't make the effort to reclaim these people, then they just get lost. These stories get lost and that is not acceptable as far as I'm concerned. So here's the thing. The Trojan War is probably most famous to us because of two big poems, the Iliad, the Odyssey, both written by Homer, or at least both attributed to Homer. Let's not get stuck into authorship of oral traditions. We don't have the time. Although, fun side project. So um, they're both about men, right? The Iliad famously begins, sing, goddess, of the wrath of Achilles. He's a man. Uh, the Odyssey begins, tell me about this complicated man, Polytrophos, much turned about man, Odysseus. They're about men. Men's stories about men doing man stuff in a man's war except here's the thing these stories are full of women they are full of women and we've just forgotten that they're right there in the midst of it so tonight I've got about 10 minutes I'm going to talk to you about perhaps the most famous woman in the Trojan War and perhaps one of the least famous women in the Trojan War entirely and unjustly forgotten in the latter case and misrepresented in the former so I hope that's fine with you is it? Yeah. Excellent <laughs> then that's what we're going to do so the most famous woman in the Trojan War I guess has to be Helen of Troy right? So much so it's in her name, except, of course, it's not really in her name. Her original name before she becomes Helen of Troy is Helen of Sparta, southern Greece, uh, which is where she starts out. She is the daughter of Leda, who is the queen of Sparta, and Zeus, who is the king of the gods. And Zeus impregnates Leda while he is in the form of a swan. <laughs> now, I have to tell you that even by the standards of Greek myth... This is an unusual strategy to employ. <laughs> it still is, if I'm absolutely honest with you. I'm, you know, a woman of certain years. I've had sex with more than, like, three people, and literally not one single time have I ever wished they were featherier. It hasn't happened. <laughs> it has not happened. And yet, it's a huge obsession with um, visual artists throughout the ages. There's a fantastic painting by Tintoretto of Lida and the Swan in a bedroom, and they've just been kind of caught out by one of her maidservants and Leda is trying to hide the swan's like one wing with her arm kind of hopelessly like she might be able to pass off the rest of Zeus as some sort of elaborate cushion <laughs> give it a go what's the worst that can happen oh wait I can hear squawking so Leda either gives birth to or is given an egg and from the egg is hatched. I'm absolutely not joking. I do see it sounds like I'm on crystal meth. This is entirely <laughs> in Greek myth. Helen is hatched from the egg. Answering the age-old question, which came first, Helen of Troy or an egg? It's an egg is the answer. Good, I'm glad we sorted that out. So, she's Helen of Sparta right up until she elopes with Paris. Right? Paris is a person, not a place. Paris turns up, he's a Trojan prince, very beautiful. He turns up in Sparta to claim his prize. He claims that he has been given Helen of Troy, as she will become, by the goddess Aphrodite. Um, he is the only witness to this offer. Um, <laughs> she makes it sound a little bit like he might be making it up, but who could say? Not necessarily me. And so she elopes with him, because clearly her husband Menelaus is boring, and he is beautiful. And so she goes off to Troy, and thus becomes the 
well, Trojan whore is how she is routinely described, and then you get the lovely pun on Trojan horse. Um, except in some versions of the story, which date back to at least the 8th century, i.e. a bit earlier than Homer even, maybe, in some versions of the story, she doesn't go to Troy at all. She goes to Egypt. And it's an image of her, an Adalon is the Greek, from which we would get the word idolatry, for example. It's an Adalon that goes in her place. She does nothing wrong. The men spend 10 years fighting a war on a false premise. Stop me if this sounds remotely plausible about anything at all <laughs> that might be happening in you know, geopolitics in any real time. That's fine. And only at the end of the war do they find out that it was a sort of mirage made out of air by the gods. And Helen has been living blamelessly in Egypt the entire time having her reputation trashed, the most hated woman in Greece, she's been there the whole time, living this completely blameless existence, right? But here's the thing, there are multiple versions of Helen's story, and so many of them are lost to us, and it really bothers me, it bothers me a lot. Here's just a small selection of my favourites. Number one, she goes to Egypt, she never goes to Troy at all, let's have that one. Number two, she does go to Troy... But she is not to blame. An assortment of other people are to blame. She gives a fantastic defence of herself in Euripides, Trojan Women. And when the poet Stesichorus, his work is now lost, when he does a poem about her saying she's a terrible person and deserves everything that comes to her, he goes blind, according to one ancient tradition. Only when he writes a nice version of her story does he get his eyesight back. (laughs) So this mythical woman can cost you your sight if you fuck with her. I love that. And even that is not the weirdest version of her. There's a version in, uh, actually, he is really obscure, even by the standards of classics, a man named Ptolemaeus Kenos, which means Ptolemy the quail. It's a weird bird theme today. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) The quail is who you get if you get really unlucky, I guess. You'd rather have a swat. I would rather. Anyway, let's not get... (laughs) Let's not get sidetracked into a tinder grinder feather. This is not the place to go. Um, But Ptolemy the quail tells of two more Helens that we just have forgotten about. The first eats three kid goats a day. That is high protein. It doesn't matter how you look at it. It's high protein, high wool. Um, The second entirely lost Helen is one who raises, it's honestly right there in his work, it's one who raises a bilingual sheep. I I have a couple of questions. Does she teach the sheep languages or does it just have them <laughs> I, I'm asking for do you know I'm asking for me is that, which like does it she, speak sheep and goat or like Greek and Trojan what I can't even begin to start how is this not the most famous story from ever I don't understand one last Helen in the final version of her that we see in Homer in book four of the Odyssey Telemachus son of Odysseus turns up to find out what's happened to his long lost father uh, his father Odysseus takes 10 years to get home from the war which has taken 10 years He doesn't live that far away, in case you're wondering. He clearly spends quite a lot of years not asking for directions, not in a mean way. Um, And he goes to look for his father, he goes to Sparta, and he finds Helen, and she is drugging, I'm not remotely joking, drugging Menelaus every night with drugs which she has got from her friend slash dealer, um, a woman named Polydamna in Egypt. And Homer describes these drugs as nepenthes. They are grief-banishing She is basically Helen of Troy, as we know her, spends her later years slipping Rohypnol to a boring man every night forever. I am absolutely not joking. It's in Homer. You're welcome. So, I told you I would tell you about the most famous women of the war and one of the least famous, and this, this one makes me angry. One of the most obscure women in the Trojan War is a woman named Penthesilea. Has any of you heard of her? Right, so, she's an Amazon princess. Double points for the small whoop. Um, For either enthusiasm or knowledge, you can have the points either way. Um, In fact, if it was both, 
extra points. <laughs> Penthesilea is an Amazon queen. She turns up to fight for the Trojans after everybody else has basically abandoned them or been killed, right? She turns up to fight Achilles, the greatest warrior of the Greeks. This is the first great warrior woman in all of literature, right? In all of Western literature, as we would probably now describe it, right? The ancients are obsessed with Amazons. If you look at Greek pots, which have designs, characters painted on them, the most popular is Heracles, Hercules, as we might say if we give him his Roman name, right? The second most popular, Amazons. Because they're incredible, right? There are pots where an Amazon has lost a battle, right? And she's been killed on the battlefield. She's been carried from the battlefield by her enemies, by the Greeks. It literally doesn't happen to any other warrior. Just these warrior women who are so incredible, so strange, that that's how they are respected. Carried from the battlefield by their enemies. What an extraordinary thing to do. Right? Penthesilea turns up at the very end of the war and she fights Achilles. She is killed by Achilles, which makes her an exact parity, have exact parity to every man who fights Achilles in the war, including Hector, the bulwark of the Trojans, whose death, spoiler, spoiler, but you've had two and a half thousand years to read it, <laughs> whose death informs the whole of the Iliad, right? It's the big climax. I really am sorry if you haven't read it. It's the big climax of the Iliad. So she is exactly as brave. She fights Achilles in single combat. She is exactly as brave as the greatest Trojan warriors. And she's entirely forgotten to us. And would you like to know why? The answer is that her deeds are celebrated in a poem which is lost, a poem called the Aethiopis. Right? And we just don't have it. So we've just forgotten about her. And when her story is told... It's mistold. So in the ancient world, the fragments of the Aethiopis that we have tell us that she came in, she fought, she lost, as everyone does to Achilles, who's the greatest warrior the world had ever known, and then she dies heroically. She dies a hero warrior death. And then Robert Graves comes along in the 20th century and tells her story, and in his version, and I am not remotely joking, Achilles kills her and then wanks over her corpse. <laughs> which must be some of that progress I'm always hearing about. So if you think I wasn't going to write a novel where I got to reclaim her, you are a fool to yourself. She is an absolute heroine, and so, frankly, is Helen. So I'm going to spend a lot of the next year, year and a half, uh, talking about these women and why they're important, why they're important to me and why I think their stories should be important to all of us. If we leave classics to be pale, male and stale, as the cliche goes, we're not doing any favours to classics. It's not like that. And it's despicable that we've allowed it to become that. So I want to get these stories back. I want to tell the stories of these women. And I want you to have them because they're wonderful. And they've made me so happy. I want you to be too. Thanks so much for having me. I'll see you in a minute. Would you please welcome to the stage, Deborah Francis-White. I'm already here. Okay, so there are so many stories about women that are not turned into movies. I saw The Old Man and the Gun. Did anyone see that? It's basically about a man who keeps on going in, holding up banks, but like a gentleman, because he's charming, and Robert Redford... Nobody minds. And then I saw another film on a plane which was uh, called Tag. And it's about uh, these men have had this game of tag. They're still doing it now. That's been going since they were kids. So each summer, one of them will just pop out from behind a, a, a post box or something and say tag. And then they'll run away. And this will go on for the whole summer. And I was like, 
Sure, and I saw it because I was on a plane that had John Hamm in it. Um, um, he's one of the taggers. And I was watching it and going, I see why someone's made a movie of this. It's a fun idea, it's a fun spirit. But think about what a black woman has to do to get a movie made about her. Think about what an Asian woman has to do to get a made. Think about even what a white woman has to do to get a movie made about her. It's not tag. I think we need to be fucking clear about that. She's got to fucking invent something or save a whole people or stand up and fight racism alone or, I mean, obviously, if it's a black woman with the help of a white saviour, you know, but who's generally a handsome man who rips a sign down and says, look, I've solved it. And, uh, but, but women have to do, even white straight women have to do a lot more than chase somebody, say tag and run away. <laughs> To get a budget of 20 million for their fucking biopic. So I just think that we all need to start suggesting stories about remarkable women and putting them forward and saying, we would go and see this movie. So I did a quick Google and I gave myself something random. So I was walking past someone in the street who was on a bicycle. I thought, great, woman on a bicycle... I bet you anything, there's a unique story that would make a great movie. That's the only constraint I gave myself. And I bet there hasn't been a movie made about her. And the first person I came up with, I thought, this is a great film pitch. Picture this. It's the year 1894. There is a woman called Annie Londonderry. Annie Londonderry decided to cycle around the globe in 15 months. Now, she was doing it to settle a wager between two rich Boston businessmen. In those days, I'm doing it to settle a wager was a common trope. It was like, I'm doing it for charity now. She set off from Boston and went west, but it took her months to get only as far as Chicago. So she ended up turning back to the East Coast and heading to New York. From there, she took a boat to France. Then she cycled through France before getting on a boat that would lead her to Singapore. To be honest with you, she took some trains. <laughs> I mean, I, that's going to be... That's a, what a great scene in the... She's such a guilt... I'm a feminist, but I cycled around the world. Sometimes I sat down on a train. <laughs> when she admitted to having a family of a husband and three young children in interviews as she was going around the world, she was quoted as saying, I didn't want to spend my life at home with a baby under my apron every year. <laughs> Literally, no one knows how to feel about that because you're like, oh, but she's leaving the babies, but that is what I would do. <laughs> that is... Now we see why she's taken this bet with the businessman. Now... A what? No one can cycle around the world in 15 months not using trains, I hear you say? I'll take that bet. I'll do that for you. You can pay me to sort out the bet. That's what she's done. And she went home and presumably said to her husband, yeah, you're looking after the kids. How long for? 15 months. Why? It's a bet. And here's a kicker. This is all great stuff for the movie. Her name wasn't Annie Londonderry. It was Annie Cohen Kopchowski. The new name allowed her safer travelling. She was a Jewish woman in the late 1800s, so she felt it was safer to hide her identity. 
So this is a story now about a woman who is part of a community that suffers a lot of prejudice and a lot of you know, violent anti-Semitism. And so she changes her name to what she thinks sounds like the most Protestant, <laughs> white, nobody could mess with you. White. She changes her name to Annie White Privilege. <laughs> She's in Boston, so she does, it's a bit like you know how the Americans invented the London Fog raincoat. So, what, what's your name? Lon, Lon, London. London Derry. Um, I hope she didn't cycle through Northern Ireland because that probably could have caused some troubles there. Um, she made money through advertising. How great is this for a scene in the movie? She attached posters and banners to her bicycle to advertise various companies, including Sterling Bicycles. She continued to gain contracts and lump sums throughout the journey. So she was doing what we do now. You know, she was basically an influencer. She was basically a bikergram influencer. And she ended up with a sponsorship deal uh, with the Londonderry Lithia Spring Water Company, who saw her and went, oh, you've got the same name as we have. And she was like, yeah. <laughs> and here's the kicker. The wager, the bet, and thus the $10,000 prize money, uh, which she was going to receive, that she told her husband she was going to get, all fake. She made it up. There were no businessmen. <laughs> she just wanted to do it. So the Boston Journal said the crowd at the State House were incredulous about her receiving any such sum as $10,000 upon her return. Many expressed the opinion that it was simply an advertising scheme from start to finish. It was actually more likely that the trip was conceived as a vehicle for her own self-promotion and to satisfy her thirst for adventure. You go, Annie, because if that were a white man and not a Jewish woman, can you imagine what people would say? First of all, he probably wouldn't need to fake it like that, but secondly, if he had, people would go... Robert Redford can play him. What a cat. <laughs> she reveled in lying to the press. She loved it about her past and her travels. She described herself as an orphan, a law student, a medical student, and a wealthy heiress, among other fanciful backstories. <laughs> she also created vast amounts of material about her journey through India and China, which she didn't do. She just didn't go there. <laughs> Made it up. <laughs> Made it up. She was on a boat the whole time then. She never saw it. She's like, what's China like? You haven't been there, fucker. It's the 1800s. There's a lot of stuff. Let me describe it to you. She told stories of hunting Bengal tigers and dodging bullets in the lectures she gave across the United States. None of that happened. Here's my favourite part. She's a terrible cyclist. <laughs> In Around the World on Two Wheels by Peter Zutlin, he says, Annie averaged between 8 and 10 miles per hour on smooth roads and a good deal less on poor roads, very slow by modern cycling standards. Uh, later on her journey, it took more than five weeks to make the 400-mile stretch to L.A. from San Fran. Uh, had they walked, they could have made it to L.A. in half the time. She knew clothing was important. Uh, she talked about her choice of clothing as much as possible. Again, she's an Instagram influencer when it comes to clothing. Uh, she made the move from skirts to bloomers to a man's suit during the course of her journey, slowly becoming more comfortable and more of an affront to those who thought the sight of a woman's cycling was uncouth. Because this was a time where women were not meant to cycle, by the way. Her bicycle weighed nearly 20 kilograms and didn't allow for freewheeling. When she got up too much speed, she had to take her legs off the pedals and pop them on the coaster brackets in case her skirts got caught in the pedals. Presumably that's why she changed into a suit. 
But she did return to Boston 15 months to the day after departure. And sure, she might have taken a few shortcuts, but she did cycle a hell of a long way. She set off carrying only a change of clothes and a pearl-handled revolver. And ended up seeing Chicago, New York, Paris, Marseille, Alexandria, Colombo, Singapore, Saigon, Hong Kong, Shanghai, and San Francisco, she says. (laughs) She could have been in a coffee shop. I don't know. (laughs) She also became a global celebrity in the process. We think of all this kind of Instagramming and YouTube and Kardashians as a new phenomenon. It's not. There's nothing new under the sun. What she accomplished was a tour de force of moxie, self-promotion, and athleticism. So says TotalWomenCycling.com, where I got a lot of this information, and I want to give them the credit. Though she was a skilled raconteur and gifted self-promoter with a penchant for embellishment and tall tales, she was also, as the evidence shows, an accomplished cyclist who covered thousands of miles by bicycle during her journey. Now, all I did was go, oh, I need a woman bike. What have I got? And I looked up because I thought maybe there has been a movie made because it's so incredible and she's so brilliant. She's so dynamic. There was once a 15-minute documentary short made about her where somebody just basically read that out to the camera and then somebody else rode a bike past. (laughs) If you made that short, I'm sure it's brilliant, but I'm just saying. (laughs) So I'm pitching this out there, but what I'd like to do is find an animator and make this a guilty feminist production. So we need somebody to animate it and we create some kind of maybe sort of viral film that might inspire a feature. So if anybody fancies, let's just make something. Let's just put it out there and make it because there are just so many women and I want everybody this week who's in this cinema and everybody who's listening at home to just pick something at random and then try and find a woman with a remarkable story and uh, see if we can start pitching these and saying, look at how many amazing women there are. And the reason it seems men are more remarkable is their story stories are more routinely told. So if you can't find anybody, do what Annie Londonbury would do and make it up. Thank you very much. Hello, Guilty Feminists. Briefly interrupting your podcast listening to say that we will be at the Edinburgh Fringe on the 2nd, 3rd and 4th of August at 4pm. We're in the big Pleasance Grand and we're already sold out on the Saturday. So quickly get in to get tickets Friday or Sunday or both. These are podcast recordings, so the shows are always different. Go to pleasance.co.uk for tickets. And while you're up in Edinburgh, why don't you check out our list of Guilty Feminist friends and co-hosts who are doing shows up there on guiltyfeminist.com. If you want to see where some of your favourites are performing their solo shows. Maybe you're not going up to Edinburgh, but you're in London. Don't worry, we're at the Underbelly South Bank on the 10th of August at 7.15. Go to underbellyfestival.com for tickets. Now we're back up in Edinburgh on August the 24th at the end of the Fringe for the Secret Policeman's Tour Show. It's at 7.30pm at the Edinburgh Playhouse. Now, The Secret Policeman is a legendary comedy brand with Amnesty International. It started in the 70s with the Pythons, and it's something we're very, very, very proud to be collaborating on. The show in Edinburgh is going to be absolutely incredible. Uh, We have Nish Kumar, we have Rachel Paris, we have Phoebe Robinson from Two Dope Queens, we have Rosie Jones, we have three of the Derry Girls, we're doing a sketch. It's going to be so brilliant. Grace Petrie, Jess Robinson, um, check out our website to see the full bill, but you really, really won't be disappointed. You can hear the Secret Policeman's Tour 
Edited Highlights podcast on our feed, and that's from the recent one at the Hackney Empire. So don't miss the August one if you can possibly help it. If you are planning a trip to Edinburgh and you don't know when, come up then and see a bunch of shows around it. But it's going to be a long show that evening and you're going to see a lot of different Edinburgh acts. So I really recommend it. Go to atgtickets.com or you can find the link on the Guilty Feminist website. Excitingly, we are announcing a crossover podcast season. That's right. We're going to take two of your favourite podcasts, one of them ours, one of them somebody else, and put them together. We're going to mash up the hosts, we're going to mash up the format, and we're going to do, for example, no such thing as a guilty feminist. And that's us and no such thing as a fish coming together to do a crossover blended podcast episode. So if you would like to come to those live recordings, they are on the 30th of August, the 31st of August and the 1st of September. We're mashing up with All Killer, No Filler. That's right. That's All Killer, No Feminism. There will be feminism, though. We're mashing up with Jessica Foster Q's hoovering all about food. And that will be called The Hungry Feminist. We're mashing up us and the incredible satirical podcast, The Bugle, with Andy Zaltzman. And that will be called The Feminist Bugle. And we are mashing up with no such thing as a fish in no such thing as a guilty feminist. All of those and more will be at King's Place and you can get tickets at kingsplace.co.uk. If you don't know them, come and discover them. They're all brilliant. Also join us every two weeks for Truth to Power Hour on Friday at 3pm. Go to at Amnesty UK on Twitter and follow or follow me at Deborah FW or at GuiltFemPod. On Instagram, I'm dfdubz, D-F-D-U-B-Z, or you can follow The Guilty Feminist there as well and get involved in Truth to Power Hour, where we fight for human rights together on a Friday afternoon. Also, my book is now out in paperback and it includes two new and exciting interviews, one with Hannah Gadsby from Nanette and the other from Phoebe Waller-Bridge from Fleabag and Killing Eve. So get that today, ideally from a bookshop that pays tax. And for everything else you need to know about what we're up to, check out guiltyfeminist.com. Back to the podcast. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Our guest today is an award-winning playwright, theatre director and screenwriter. Her plays include Blue Stockings, Nell Gwyn and The Playhouse Apprentice. And her film and television credits are something to behold. Please put your hands together for the wonderful Jessica Swale. So, Jessica, hello. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing at the moment. Firstly, sort of recovering from that story. That was quite amazing, wasn't it? Mm. But it did make me think... You mentioned Blue Stockings, which is a play I wrote a couple of years ago, and that has a huge scene where women... Blue Stockings are educated women. A derogatory term, which is a bit sad, isn't it? Were they for... called Blue Stockings because they actually wore blue stockings? And yes. was that seen as unsexy or something? Well, no. Sadly, the original Blue Stocking was a man. Of course. <laughs> they uh, can't let us have anything. No. 
Even derogatory terms for us. <laughs> so in the 1700s, there were uh, little soirees where mostly quite posh women got together and had tea and talked about clever things. And they were a sort of club for intellectuals. Wow. Yeah, which is cool. Um, But one of the early ones, there was a man who turned up and he was a bit outrageous and he wore blue stockings. And so it became known as the Blue Stocking Society. And ever since then, if you have been a woman who's cared about learning stuff, then you are called a blue stocking. So the blue stockings never wore blue stockings? No, I don't think so. I mean, they could have done secretly, but because they all had really long skirts... You know, maybe it was a Nobody feminist knew. act that people Nobody just didn't know. know about. I wouldn't, in it. solidarity. Would I might you? wear blue stockings this week. Right. Just to piss them off. Little Miss Blue Stocking. Um, we should all do that. We should just make it the new... Oh, yes. The new thing. Why don't we do that? Next winter, let's say we all wear blue stockings, just for lols. Well, when we did... We did uh, blue stockings was on at the Globe, and on press night, we thought it would be funny if we all wore blue stockings. You know, in a sort of massively original take on the pun of blue stockings. And we tried to find them, and you cannot get them anywhere. What about navy tights? Because I think that's as close <laughs> as I'm going to get. Yeah. I'm going to wear navy tights in solidarity. Nice uh, opaque. A nice yeah, sensible A nice opaque. sensible opaque. That's what they were. British worn. winter. Yeah, that's because let me tell you, students. do not look up blue stockings on Twitter or YouTube or Instagram because the images that you get are not necessarily the, the ones educated women for. that uh, you would be expecting. I see your point so tell us what draws you to the films and projects you do you chose these stories in horrible histories because there were a lot of women in them and horrible histories has often been because of the power structures and the way history is written down often be very masculine centered is that yeah well i'd never done horrible histories before i normally write original stuff and so it's quite strange writing a film for what is essentially a TV series which has been hugely successful and a sketch show so trying to construct something that can be a long form narrative you know with characters that you start with at the beginning and then go on a sort of interesting enough journey and trying to work out who those people can be and whose story we want to tell when the audience is mostly kids and so we sort of looked around at what moment in history to pick and because it's a big British film we wanted to do something that was to do with British history and the Celts, you know, not only because they cover themselves in blue paint, which is, you know, a really good reason for writing them on the big screen, I think, but they had such an interesting sort of huge explosion in terms of gender politics. Like, Boudicca is mm. so kick-ass, and nobody knows what happened to Boudicca. There were a lot of different accounts, and they were all written by Nero and his cronies, and quite a lot of them significantly later. But she was an amazing woman and a lot of the communities in the Celtic communities, women were much higher up in the sort of pecking order and that's one of the reasons for picking that story. It's the story of a Celtic girl and a young Roman guy and their sort of meeting of minds or or not, is the case maybe. Let's get it on. Or, or nearly that. I tried to do that and then they said, oh no, but it's a kid's film so let's make them a little bit younger and there's There is a real a story hint. where that happens. In Roman Britain, there's a woman called Cartamandua, I think. And uh, she has a husband who... And they are sort of vassal kings to Rome, basically, or vassal tribal leaders to Rome. And she chucks her husband and ditches him for a spear carrier, i.e. 
somebody who was younger, handsomer, and much lower status. Oh. And she just basically goes, yeah, bored of you, fancy the hot young guy. Mm, and then he, rough. he declares war and the Romans support him. And then we never find out what happened. It's the only, one of the very, very few examples in all of history of a beautiful man starting a war in the way that Helen of Troy is supposed to have started a war. I just think we're rarely told those stories and where they've survived. Of course those things must have happened, but where they've survived. It's so hard to find them. They're not made into films. They're not made into... Yeah, and the sources are incredibly fragmentary and the Romans especially are not very interested in people who aren't Roman as a yeah. general rule which is why it's so hard to find things out about the early Christian church because the Romans are going I don't know there's some crazy people it's exactly like Life of Brian they're like I don't know there's some crazy people over there making a big fuss about some guy who got nailed up um, it's the, after the there's one uh, rebellion in Rome where they sacrifice a, well uh, crucify 3,000 people in a day so Jesus isn't unusual to the Romans you know, he's not even an interlude. He's just like, boom, another one gone. Yeah, which is like, what the Life of Brian shows. Absolutely. We were just it's completely showing, trivial to them. Yeah, we were just showing the Life about... of Brian to some Syrian friends because we're trying to <laughs> show them all of the films and television shows that where you might, if you wanted to live in Britain long term, that you might hear these things This uh, would be a reference or, you'd want to get. Yeah, a yeah. reference or understanding. But we had to sort of say before, a lot of what they're parodying is 1970s trade unions. And, you know, we had to yeah. sort of sit there. Tom Selinsky gave them an extremely long TED talk nice. before they were allowed to watch it um, in order that they could enjoy it more. Um, <laughs> but I wonder if it's, it's also to do with people being a bit embarrassed about some of that history too. So, for example... Um, we were talking about blue stockings earlier on. That play was about the first women to be educated in higher education in Britain, which doesn't sound like a sexy story, but it really is. So it was set in Cambridge in the 1890s, which was the first time there was a college open for women. All those girls going to university for the first time. And they weren't allowed to graduate. So they did identical studies to the men. They went there. Their life was made really difficult by Cambridge, who didn't allow them any toilets because... They were only loose for the men. So they had to carry chamber pots around with them, some like some sort of slightly dirty version of Mary Poppins, you know, and go around the back street and have a wee around the back and then come back. They didn't have anywhere to eat their lunches, so they had to sort of sit in the biology labs next to the cadavers and have their sandwiches because they weren't allowed into the main canteens in case they distracted the men. And then they were not allowed into lectures and quite often they were either ignored or people threw stuff at them. And then at the end of three years, even though they worked really hard, they were not allowed to graduate. But the point in 1897 when this all came to a head was a huge riot where all of the Cambridge establishment in reaction to the girls asking for the right to graduate decided to put on extra trains to bring back all the old graduates, all the men to then vote against the women. Mm who basically were putting their best foot forward and saying, please, can we have the right to graduate because we're doing the same exams as you and we're working really hard and quite and often, often we're doing we're really, really well. outstripping the men as well because yeah. they were there to learn. Yeah. Because a lot of the men were there to party because that's what you did. You went to university yeah. before you stepped into the job of Chancellor of the Exchequer. And you didn't I mean, have that's to... that's all changed now, for though. For example. Yeah. That's just changed now, though. That's but nothing like... And at this point... So... <laughs> There's no, there's none of that now, though. No, not and there's at all. no gambling away a country in a poker game on a yeah. log. There's no, it's different now. And bearing in it's mind, different. at this point, if you had gone to Eton or to Harrow, you didn't even have to take an exam to get into Cambridge. Why should you? You got an automatic. Why pass. should you? It's evident you're the kind of material they're looking for. Yeah. Can you put your penis in this pig's head? Yes or no? <laughs> it's simple. It's simple. Yes or no? So. There was this huge... In, so in 1897, on the day that they were having the vote, Cambridge got really scared because they thought, oh, 
actually, possibly there's a chance that we might have to allow women to graduate. And so let's invite back all the old guys and they can come and vote to make sure that this motion definitely doesn't pass. But not only did they have a vote, they created effigies of the female students, carried them through the street, made bonfires and then burnt them in the street like some sort of... 1900 version is this of being made into a movie Guy because men need is, to see yeah. this and it women is. need to see this we need to see how hard it was it yeah. is big bad is it being made into a movie by you yeah excellent well it's actually a tv series but still yeah okay but here's the thing and that's going to be called blue stockings it is called do, you, blue do we know when we might be able to see that well when i've finished it <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing here i don't know I'm typing typing more typing um, but the strange thing about it all is that this happened in 1897, 98, and everyone thought, they're almost, we're almost there, almost there. And then it was another 50 years before women were allowed to graduate a from Cambridge. A mere five decades. 1948. No. 1948. Some women were graduating in the 20s. No. What? Any woman who went to Cambridge in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, they did their studies, but officially they weren't graduates. But then how did... Some of them became lawyers and things. In the 40s, there were female lawyers and female doctors. Yeah, if they'd gone to other universities, they were allowed a degree certificate. And you could... They would be allowed to say, I went to Cambridge, but they wouldn't have any paper evidence of it. That's terrible. Yeah. That's I mean, bad. I knew that was the case, but I didn't think it was up till you know, last Wednesday. Yeah. But the, <laughs> that's what I mean, though, isn't it? Possible, because I couldn't believe that this story hadn't been told when I, because I came across it about six or seven years ago and thought, why is this not in everything? Put in, put on in every TV. W- yeah, woman, woman stocking. Yeah, and you know they'll Wait. be in a. Ma- don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Do that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but it's what I'm saying. I just saw a bike in the street. I, went, I bet there's a story worth telling about a woman who did an amazing thing on yeah. a bike. It's just no one's bothered because um, why would we? No one wants to see women doing anything. But in the first scene of Blue Stockings, the girls learn physics by sitting on a bike, which they've never done before in their bloomers so oh, they go full circle full and then there's some men watching with... them over the fence throwing stuff at them of course there are and there will be and i think we need to be very clear always a man over a fence throwing stuff at you and that should not stop you <laughs> and we need more movies to say there have always been men's rights activists there's always been somebody burning an effigy in the street or on twitter that is not a reason to stop that is your fuel to push on, mm. to ride your bicycle around the world on a made-up bet, <laughs> pretending to be somebody you're not and lying about where you've been and coming back a huge hero with an enormous sponsorship deal <laughs> that you got yourself and saying, hey, kids, remember me, it's mum. <laughs> I'm home. I hope you had a nice year with daddy. <laughs> And then doing that click, which I don't think they did in the 1800s, but I feel the spirit of the click. Spirit of the click. So what, how do you decide on, I'm going to write on Nell Gwynn, or I'm, what qualities are you looking for in a hero that make you think, yeah, I'm going to follow that? It's not necessarily about women. I think one of the reasons I tell a lot of women's stories is because there's such a sort of wealth of really fascinating stories and women that we ought to be curious about and I feel like we've seen those stories so many times told from either a male perspective or about a man for example Nell Gwynn so she was possibly arguably the most important actress in this country ever in that there weren't any and then she was one of the first and she was illiterate and she became the most famous comedian I'm kind of more interested in that than the fact that she was shagging the king that was a whole other story but you know she did become the people's sort of hero because she was funny and the fact that you can be an actress when you couldn't read at the time and you sort of taught yourself how to use language is really impressive 
I wanted to tell her story because I just hadn't seen it mm. on a big screen or really told fully in the theatre. And you thought, well, you know, how do we have the story of Dick Whittington, who was a bit of a nobody, didn't really do anything very interesting. Like the Pauper to Prince story, we've seen that a million times. He just kind of wandered around London a bit. She started in the same he sort his of... Cat. He gave his cat away as I well. Know, don't, I mean... I don't like it. No, no, I don't like it. He sold his cat yep. to get rich. And his cat was his only friend. I don't like a cat seller. <laughs> if your cat's stuck with you, you do not deserve a panto. And do not... What if you about sell him? magic beans? Oh, Because sometimes in a panto, there's magic beans. Okay, all right. Jack of the Beanstalk. He's he got... swaps a cow for magic beans, right? Yeah, yeah. A cow fine. But he... There's a lot of he pet wants trading. The... Oh, yeah, he does. But a cow, I feel, is more, I don't know, a cat. I'd more likely sell a cow than a cat. I'm not going to lie to you. Okay. But, oh, no, the vegans have taken a turn. I'm so sorry. <laughs> plant-based, plant-based. No, you're right. You are right. The main thing is, I feel like Jack of the Beanstalk's got more beats to it. You're right. Dick Whittington just wanders around a bit... He's a bit of a loser and then suddenly gets made mayor. Yeah. And again, and yet, where can you find story that story every... in London ever that a bit of a loser becomes made mayor? Yeah. <laughs> and then has massive influence he shouldn't have in this country? It's hard to... I'm talking about Boris, by the way, not, <laughs> not Sadiq. I love Sadiq. But you're right, Nelgwyn's story is more interesting than that. Yeah, if you put those two stories next to each other, one of them is about someone with an immense amount of talent who threw her own great talents and creativity and humour and comedy and all of her different assets goes through at a point of history where no one could have had any sort of a rise like that conventionally and defies everything in order to get to the top, both socially and in her work and in her marriage, etc., etc. Dick Whittington, I just feel like in comparison, his story's a bit lame. And yet, how many times have you had to go and see that in the theatre? I did see a very good version of it this year, written by Carrie Lloyd, who is a Guilty Feminist regular, and she did a brilliant thing with it, where it felt, I, again, I took uh, one of the Syrian lads who we made watch The Life of Brian... He agreed to it. We didn't make him. Uh, but I took him because it was sort of like about a refugee. It was about a young lad who pitches up with nothing, but through the kindness of strangers and just sort of, you know... So she found a retelling of it. But you're right. There are lots of stories about men that are told again and again and again, unless you're going to do a fresh take. You know, is it, if you are a woman who writes about... Who, who has written a number of things and one or two of them happen to be about historical women all you get asked to do ever is write about the same already famous historical women that everybody already knows about mm. so I think in the last couple of years I've been asked to write so many different projects about someone like Florence Nightingale and just think alright what about all those other women that existed throughout the entire of history but mm. it's because we because we don't see them and because they're not articulated in our sort of dialogue it's very difficult, which is why your book is, you know, so exciting, because finding those people... I looked at Peter Ackroyd's book the other day. He's written a book called Albion, which is all about English creativity, which is really interesting and massive. I might have only read the introduction. But I tell you what, the introduction is... There's a section at the beginning where it details all of the people who have been important in the English imagination since the beginning of time, from the sort of Beowulf story onwards and it's six pages in before you get to a woman's name mm. and then in a list of something like 1500 imagineers there's probably 20 or 30 in the entire cultural british history as he's put it forward on that list 
And the more that we just regurgitate that, that's the problem. There are loads yeah, of really interesting people. That becomes the truth, that becomes the narrative. Exactly. Tell us about what you're doing with Gemma. What's the film you're doing with her? It's a film called Summerland. Uh, it is uh, completely fiction. It's about a, a woman in the 1940s who's a folklore historian who... What? Basically. Is it about Natalie Haynes? <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's about Natalie Haynes. Continue. I've moved through time. Yeah. She, Continue. Um, she, th- this folklore historian lives on her own uh, <gasps> Do in, you live in on your house. own? That's definitely something I want on the record, Deborah. <laughs> I, I, I wasn't sure. I was checking in because I, I want these details to match. As well, this as, is a good game. This I've is a good game. I've got stalkers enough. Okay, fine, without, fine. Without it, it, it's no, I live with eight giant men. Okay, it's not going to be... It's, it's not... One of them is The Rock. Okay, okay. The other one is Aquaman. Sure. Wait, what my is, life just got way better. Is the other one what? Captain Marvel? What is Captain Marvel? Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel woman. Um, that yeah. film is poorly plotted. Captain Marvel? Yes. I haven't seen it yet. I, it's poorly plotted and, and it's a disappointing thing. Uh, but, but some people in Hollywood might listen to The Guilty Feminist and they might have written it, so... They could have tried harder. OK. That's <laughs> uh, <laughs> what I love about you, Natalie. She pulls no punches like she's a Roman warrior. So she's 1940s. She's, she's in a the folklore. 1940s, yeah. She's a folklore historian who lives on her own on the edge of a village. So everybody thinks because she's a woman who lives on her own, she's a bit weird. So she's probably a witch. But her job is to what? <laughs> I'm not saying anything. What? Uh, she said probably, not definitely. <laughs> but her job is to look at folklore, myths, and legends, and she tries to sort of all those magical stories. She looks at them and tries to work out what the science is that explains it. So she's basically a squasher of magic. She's a cynic. And then, of course, she gets delivered a small evacuee that she has no maternal bones in her body, so she doesn't want to look after a kid. And she... Um, <laughs> this is not... This is not... This is not... No, 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 no I wrote my you. dissertation on Euripides Medea, women who kill their own children. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's a comedy! It's a light-hearted, bright comedy. It's not a tragedy. <laughs> She's given an evacuee who, through their relationship, starts to make her wonder whether magic might really exist. (gasps) But it's also about her secret history. So it's a sort of intertwined tale. And it's all set in the south of England on the cliffs, which is kind of a rather nice part of the world. And Gemma plays said witchy folklore historian. Excellent. Can I come to the premiere? Yes. Excellent. Good. I've got a good dress. Um, It's been quite an interesting... What's it called? uh, It's called Summerland. Which uh, is the pagan notion of heaven. And are you writing and directing that? I have done, yes. Oh, you have done? It's in the can? It, well, it is in the edit. When will we be able to see that? Hopefully, the end of this year. <gasps> Ooh. I'm so excited. Can I bring to the premiere a friend of mine who may relate to some of the material <laughs> in some unexpected ways? Yes. <gasps> Amazing. And we also will look out for Blue Stockings. And Nell Gwynn is being made into a film. It is. You are such a busy woman. When when will Nell Gwynn be up? Uh, Soon. Soon. (laughs) Don't commit. Who's playing Nell Gwynn? Don't know yet. Don't know? No. It's a mystery. (laughs) But (laughs) it will definitely not be a privileged white man. Although, do you know how hard people are looking for work? The problem with writing these stories is that when you pitch them for the first time, people always want to know, so who's going to be the king? Or how can you make that part bigger? Because in order to sell our movie, we have to make the man part 
particularly huge. Oh, yeah. bloody hell. And the same thing, the first time I talked to anyone about blue stockings in TV, they said, oh, that sounds, um, sounds interesting. We've already got our woman drama for this year. And our hundred no man kidding. dramas. Yeah. A really long time yeah. ago, I think probably before you were doing stand-up even, I vivid it's still seared into my soul being told that I couldn't go on a bill on a particular night, which would have been convenient for me, mm. but I had to go two weeks later because they already had a woman on that night. Mm. And it was absolutely the case that this particular club, which shall remain nameless, and this particular promoter who will really remain nameless, used to treat women, you know this term, as a special act. And special is an abbreviation for speciality. So being a woman was roughly the same in stand-up when I was a stand-up in the late 90s as being a ventriloquist. Yes. Or doing magic tricks. Yeah. Or having a ukulele. Or having a guitar. Yeah. It was it absolutely yeah. 100% that is true. chromosomes. So we've moved on a little bit, we hope. Oh, yes. Leaps and creeps. <laughs> um... <laughs> My very first job when I was an assistant director in the theatre, I got introduced to the company on the first day is, this is my glamorous assistant. Yeah. Wow. I mean, so, to be fair, you aren't glamorous. I am um, a feminist, but... <laughs> another one of my very first jobs, I got told if I wanted to be taken seriously, I should not wear makeup and dress like a lesbian. I have done that, and it's been fine, for what it's worth. <laughs> I've dressed like a oh, 90s lesbian for mean? ages. Yeah. And since, honestly, since the 90s. Yeah. I've just never really bothered changing. <laughs> and it's been fine. It's surprising how many people just don't really know what to do. You go, yeah, hello, I haven't dressed for your approval. Unless you like Snoopy, in which case, yes, I have. <laughs> I'm not a lesbian, so I don't know what to say to this. Um, to be fair, I'm not a lesbian, I just like the look. <laughs> But it's funny, isn't it, that that's what the notion is of if you want to be taken seriously, that was exactly what I was being told, was you have to make sure that you don't look too conventionally feminine, what people would expect you to... Interestingly, though, if you're in front of the camera, you have to look overtly conventionally feminine, and Mm -hmm. if you're behind the camera, look like you could almost be as good as a man in a pinch, in a crisis, if there wasn't a man available... You could live up to that job by being makeup free. And it can really we helps. just say, we do know lesbians wear a variety of <laughs> outfits. Uh, any lesbians in, in a variety of outfits, give us a cheer. If you're a lesbian and you do identify with <laughs> Natalie Haynes' look as 90s lesbian, give us a cheer. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Endorsed and validated. Natalie, anything to plug? Uh, yes, uh, my new novel, A Thousand Ships. Look how pretty it is. I didn't design the cover, so... No, I know, right? I had nothing to do with this, so I can just boast about it. But I did write the inside, which is the... <laughs> That's the harder bit. Nearly as important. So harder bit, yeah. A I Thousand like Ships comes books up... books and covers and idioms come to mind. Uh, I mean, yeah. you know, it does matter, though, when they're pretty. But A Thousand Ships, a book which nearly destroyed me, but didn't quite comes out on the 2nd of May and I'll be touring a live show that goes with it called Troy Story for which I can only apologise oh. um, starting on the 22nd uh, 26th maybe of April who knows somebody should know I should write it really but uh, we've got time and so we can go and find your website which is nataliehaines.com and if you want the radio show it's on Audible it's called Natalie Haynes Stands Up for the Classics if you get your name in the title that bit harder to fire you and the 5th series will be broadcast on BBC Radio 4 starting on the 23rd of December Great. Okay. Plenty to find there. Go to Natalie Haynes' website and get it all. Anything to plug? 
Do you know, I don't have anything to plug, but I would just like to say, when we were talking at the beginning about finding stories of people who haven't been celebrated, and it isn't just about women as well, obviously, there's a sort of small group of people who've had their stories told again and again and again, but everybody else needs to up the ante. I would really like to encourage everybody to have a go at writing because women in this country, you know, in school, this is true, are not encouraged particularly in terms of creative writing because you have to have a lot of confidence in order to have a voice to feel like I never wrote anything for years and years because there weren't female playwrights. I didn't know they existed. I'd never seen anything by a woman. And because I didn't see it, I didn't realise that I could be it. And I thought, well, who wants to hear my opinion? I don't have anything to say. So the more women that are writing, the more interesting mm. stories we're going to get. And essentially, you know, there's... Whatever we want to do about diversity on the screen, unless people are writing those scripts, it's never going to change. It's not enough to get great women to be on screen. They need to have great parts. So if everyone here and everyone who's listening starts writing, I might massively talk myself out of all of the work ever. <laughs> but no, that's a okay. very generous feminist thing to do, is you're saying... I could uh, do you, you're not saying, oh, I'm, I'm a special act, no. and so you can all stand have down and just watch my work. You're saying, tell your own stories, and tell stories that appeal to you. Please and, do. Yeah, make them up. You can't swing a cat on Wikipedia for finding a woman who hasn't had a movie made about her. <laughs> and you can put that on a T-shirt. <laughs> You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Natalie Haynes, and our very special guest, Jessica Swale. The recording engineer was Chris Sharp. Music was by Mark Hodge. The producer was Tom Sinitsky for the Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Anna and Jonathan and everyone at the BFI, as well as all of you for listening. More information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Well done, well done that. Any feminist t-shirts in? Yes, what do you got? Uh, it just says feminism. It just says fe- w- Really, simple and to the point. No clever messages. Don't obfuscate it. No jokes. The men's rights activists don't get them. There's no need for that. Just feminist. That's what I am. If you're looking at my... Straightforward. I love it. Anybody else got anything else? Yes? It's just got hearts on the nips. Hearts on the nips. <laughs> Feminism has changed since I was a girl. <laughs> hearts on the nips, and I love the fact that hearts on the nips is a big high five feminist matter now. <laughs> high five, high five. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com And uh, welcome if you are a man. I know this is a very...